Turn to the Gospel of John. We've been we've been preaching through the the, uh, the the book of Amos, but today, for this special service, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of John, the very first section, the first eighteen verses, beginning to read with verse one of the Gospel of John. Hear now the word of the Lord. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning. With God, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness to the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his town did not receive him. But as many as received him to them, he gave the the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me. For he was before me, and of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. May the Lord bless this reading to our good understanding. Now, I want to focus this morning on the the idea of the Word of God as it is contained in the title of the sermon, the Word of God and the sacraments. So I want to focus on how the, how the Word is related to the sacrament. And in reading through the Gospel of John this week, this you know, hit me that this would be a, a really, even though it doesn't refer to communion per se, I, I felt like this would be a wonderful application of this text to our receiving the Lord's Supper. There's much confusion today uh, between the Protestant view of the Lord's Supper and uh, what I will call the, the Roman Catholic view, which is a pagan view. And I might, that might surprise you. Certainly, if, if this is heard by any Roman Catholic believer or, or participant, um, they might they would say well, how can you call our church and its practice of the Lord's Supper pagan but that is um, uh, that is my my purpose here um, what what's the difference between we think beyond Romanism what what's the difference between let's say a Mayan Native American ritual you know, they have these pyramids that they built in South America, Central America, Southern Mexico, Yucatan, the Mayan kingdom. It's a rather sophisticated uh, 
uh, native tribe, yet it was pagan in the sense that it was not Christian. Some people are not sure of the, the definition for the word pagan, but it was a word that was de designates people who are outside of the church. And so uh, what is the difference between a pagan Mayan uh, celebration or religious ceremony on one of their pyramids than from our, our doing the Lord's Supper, from our Christian, from our Protestant view of a ceremony? And when you ask that question, you have to say, well, um, the people that are outside of the Christian church, they tend to not have a very good definition of God. Their, their definition of God is very, very ambiguous. They tend to see that, that the world is immersed in a kind of divine spirit. They mistake, they confuse the creation with the creator. And so they see... They, they tend to think of spirits being in the woods and spirits being in the animals. When the Native Americans would wear uh, headdresses and other items of, of uh, animals like bear claws and things like that, they were, they were trading on this kind of nebulous spirituality that they thought infused the world. Now, the, the Mayans uh, were very organized, much more so than most of the Amer North American tribes, um, but in the, their organization was not really blessed in the sense that these pyramids were designed to be sacrificial structures where they would sacrifice people from the top. On the, they would have an altar on the top of the pyramid and they would, they would execute people there or they wouldn't call it an execution, even though the people all died that were brought there. But they, they saw it as part of their religious ceremony. So if you compare the, 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 the pagan type of religion, or in this case the Mayans, there was when they had these ceremonies, there was great solemnity, much like we might have in uh, Christian ceremonies. Great solemnity. People had special robes and special dress. And there were special prayers and special cantations that were uttered. So in many ways, it would look like a church service. But what's the difference between that kind of church service and our church service? And um, the bottom line was that they thought that, um, <clears throat> that man's ceremonies could in some way capture the power of the Spirit and bring it in terms of blessing on themselves. Man's, uh, man's activities, man's ceremonies, man's uh, spiritual ceremonies, could in some way capture uh, and, and uh, distribute the, the special blessings of the spirit world or God, if they had a more clear view of God, uh, to their people. Well, you see, the Lord's Supper, we hope to uh, obtain God's privileges and God's blessings too through this. Is there any difference between the two or are they all basically the same? And that's where the Gospel of John in this beginning, focusing on the Word of God uh, as the eternal Christ, that's where it comes to inform us uh, quite a bit. Because uh, uh, Christianity would have considered the Mayan celebration of worship to be an abysmal horror because people were, people were captured. Sometimes it was war captive. Sometimes it was people within their culture that they wanted to execute. Sometimes it was children because they believed, like the ancient Canaanites, they believed that if children were sacrificed, that this would bring more blessing uh, 
to the, the culture, to the civilization, um, uh, despite the loss of hundreds and thousands of young people at one time, they, they thought that this would work to their blessing in the long run. But that's, that's exactly what the Old Testament prophets dealt with and their prophecies about turning your children over to Moloch. This is paganism. Paganism has many wrong-headed ideas, and they tend to be not just wrong-headed, but they tend to be cruel and abysmal. So all religions are not the same, and all religious ceremonies are not the same. The problem is that with Rome, that Rome has this view that basically through the work of the priesthood, that they can automatically obtain the blessings of God. Now they believe to, to their credit, I mean, they at least uh, relate it to God. They, they think that God has given them this power. But when, when the Protestants of the Reformation asked them where in the Bible this was taught, um, they really couldn't say. They, they would confuse places where the Bible taught generally uh, or somewhat ambiguously about how the power of the Lord's Supper was, was worked to the blessing of the church. But they would, they couldn't really, uh, they couldn't really determine specifically how this blessing was obtained based on the things that they were doing. And we learned last week in our Sunday school lesson that the, John Calvin called the Roman Catholic Mass the show, <laughs> which I, I it's, it's a wonderful historical reference because they didn't believe that the person who came to the Lord's Supper had to know anything. They didn't think that the person who partook of the sacrament had to had to understand Christology or had to understand soteriology, that is the doctrines of who Christ was or the doctrines of how he saved us. That was not really important. If they were there, if they simply saw the mass being done, they would get blessed by it. And so we learned last week that there was a whole hundred years where people stopped even coming to the mass. Uh, or partaking of the Mass, I mean, because they were there, they saw it, and so they believed that they got the grace. They got automatic grace through doing this thing. It's kind of like the Mayans who believe they got automatic grace by killing people. And, and uh, it's horrible to think that these Mayan temples, you think, look at them today and they look somewhat beautiful, but in the day that they were working, the, the, the blood, the gallons, the hundreds of gallons of human blood from the top of these pyramids would drip down the sides and in a most grotesque, horrible example of, uh, of human uh, butchery. Sometimes people wonder, why, how could Cortez, with a 500, four or 500 men, I think it was, how could Cortez uh, conquer Mexico with its millions of people? Well, one of the reasons was that the common people were crying out for a deliverer from this horrible injustice, this is cruel and abominable practice of the Central American religions. That's not taught in our schools today. They don't like to, talk, to talk, teach much about the negative dimensions of paganism or the fact that if you're outside of Christ, bad things tend to happen. They, they don't like that. But here we are as Protestants, and we have a ceremony, and, and how is our ceremony different? Well, when we come to John 1, uh, we see, I'll just run through a number of points here and try to do as quick as possible. First of all, we see 
that God is the power in John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And if we look back at Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, we see it says in 1.1, 1, 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was on the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the earth, or the waters. And then in verse 3, verse 6, verse 9, verse 11, verse 14, and verse 20, it, on each of those paragraphs it says, Then God said. So that it portrays the living God bringing the whole mass of creation into being and then organizing it, apportioning it out day by day to, to organize certain features of the creation. And all of the power comes from God. It's transported through the Word of God. And when the Word of God speaks upon a certain area of life, like in verse 3, it's the, about the light and the darkness. Verse 6, it's about the firmament and the, heaven, the waters, the seas and the skies, the waters and the heavens. Verse 9, it says, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And, uh, and it was so. And then um, uh, verse 11, uh, God says, let the earth bring forth grass and herbs that yield seeds. So whereas first of all, there was, there was a land and seas that were created. Now God creates creatures that are, that are upon them, the, the vegetation first. And then in verse 14, then God said, let there be lights in the firmament, lights in the heavens, the stars, and divide the day from the night, and let them um, be so. And then in verse 20, God said, let the waters abound with uh, living creatures. So he created the waters, he created the dry ground, now he creates creatures that would be appropriate to those two fields or those two auras. And then in verse 24, God says, let the earth bring forth the living creatures, according to it's kind, cattle, beasts of the earth, um, uh, and that kind of thing. Uh, and then in verse 26, uh, it says, then, then God said, let us make man in our image. So at, at the very last creature that was made, you know, we could very easily be a cow, as the Hindus believe, or a, a bird of the air. We could very easily be that. But there was a sixth day. And on the sixth day, God spoke again in his word, called out of all the living creatures. He, he created a new creature, creature, mankind. And he says really special things about him. Psalm 8 teaches us about the great calling of mankind, how mankind is so special, how he has vocational and worshipful dimensions of his life, cultural and cultic dimensions of his life. And it's wonderful, the organization of God. But all of that came about because of what God had said. Because his word was powerful, his divine word was powerful, and it organized the creation. And then when we get to John 1, we see for clearly, we see for sure, that this word was none other than the pre-incarnate Christ Jesus. The, 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 uh, the uh, eternal word, the eternal son. And so... All of a sudden, we see the great dimensions for that. But what we want to focus on here this morning is the, is the insight, this is the divine insight, divine revelation, that the second person of the Trinity is called the Word of God, and it's the same Word that organized everything in the creation. So 
the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son, the pre-incarnate Son, the eternal Son, the only begotten Son of the Father, he is that great divine liaison between the Godhead and the earth and all that it has. And so the earth is Jesus' special domain. And so it shouldn't surprise us, given that, it shouldn't surprise us that when the earth fell into sin, that it was the main task of the Son to win the earth back, to redeem the earth, to, to bring the earth back into configuration with the Son, with the Father, and with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the heavenly places. And so um, this is the role of Jesus. Uh, but we notice that he is called a word, uh, the word, the divine word. Now, why would God, we, we, it's, I think it's easy for us to see the splendor of Christ, the Son, the only begotten Son of the Father. But why would God call him the word? Why would God designate the Son as the eternal word of God? that did all of these things. Well, first of all, it's true. It just, that's the way things are. But secondly, what we see here is that, that uh, part of the divine being is uh, its reasonability, its, its uh, rationality. The Lord is not a God who just is, quote, ambiguously spiritual. He has these, he has these spiritual thoughts that we can't really analyze out logically reasonably. Now, his reason is above ours. <laughs> his mind is the divine mind. We often struggle with understanding the Lord, but we know that beyond our lack of understanding, there is a rationale. And one of the ways we know that is because he calls uh, the second person of the Trinity uh, the divine word, the eternal word of God. What, what is a word? Uh, a word is a um, uh, a thing that can be spoken, but it always has meaning. If I if I look past you all this morning, I see library shelves behind you. The library shelf is a combination of two words, library and shelf. Both of those things designate something. It's something specific. It's something meaningful. If I come back from the from the library shelves, I see people. People, we, we, uh, uh, if, we're, if we're a person, then we're not uh, a simple animal in the sense of an amoeba or something like that. We're, we're a six-day person and not a fifth-day person or a fifth-day animal, I should say. And so <clears throat> every word that we can use has real definition to it. It has real definity to it. And each word is really important. Uh, you know, you can't uh, uh, you can't use the wrong words and communicate. If you want, if you see your child up in the tree, having, having climbed a tree, you can't say to your child, "Come out of the swamp," or "Come out of the water." The child wouldn't have any idea what you were talking about, and you'd be you'd be condemned for being confusing and ambiguous in your speech. Words are so wonderful; they're so helpful. Because words give us clarity and understanding. Well, when God calls himself the divine or eternal word, 
he is saying that there is a great meaning in him as the divine God. And that that imposes itself on everything that he does. It marks everything that he does. Now, the, the key is when we come to the Lord's Supper, in the Reformed world, we believe that you cannot have the Lord's Supper without the preached word. It's the very opposite of, the, of paganism. Paganism believes that you can have all kinds of ceremonies and you don't need any real explained word or elaborate word. They just believe in ceremonies. They believe in magic. They believe in superstition. They believe that the spirit world is out there. And if, if people come together, they wear special robes and, and uh, just feel oogly googly. If, if, they, if they have those spiritual feelings, well, then there's blessing there. But you see, the living God is just the opposite. He says there's no blessing without meaning, without definition. And so in John chapter 2, he wants, or John chapter 1, uh, the fourth gospel, he wants people to understand who this Jesus is. And so he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was with God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made. And that's general. But then it says in verse 4, in him was life. That's a new thing. In him was life. Well, he created the world, so it, certainly there's eternal life in the sun. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. So this gets it. This, there are notes here that you do not hear in Genesis 1, because in Genesis 1 there was no sin. Now in John 1, there is sin. And so as he is, the Bible talks about the divine word that, that came forth in the sun, that it, it shined forth with brightness, brilliance, that, it, that the context of that shining was the darkness. The darkness of mankind has fell into sin. Do our universities teach that today? I mean, it's a very basic thing. It's a, it's a fundamental thing that we know that the world is in darkness now. Every enterprise in which we find ourselves, we ought to realize that that enterprise proceeds in the midst of darkness. And our, our goal is to get out of the darkness and to get into the light. So where is the light? Well, the Bible says here the only real light, this is really an aside to the sermon, but the only real light comes from God. And so uh, when, when God turns on the lights, then he enables us to learn things that we wouldn't have understood rightly without understanding that spiritual dimension. But if we do understand it, then uh, we can understand it better. So to come back to the Lord's Supper, <clears throat> the Lord's Supper cannot be done as a ceremony. That's paganism. It cannot be done as a ceremony that works all by itself. That's Roman Catholicism. Their view is called ex opere operato in Latin. It means that the, that the ceremony worked in and of itself. It worked automatically. You didn't have to have any kind of special faith. You didn't have to know all that much. You could be totally ignorant, but if you were there in the church, you would get the blessing automatically by being there in that special, holy, spiritual place. That's the very opposite of Protestantism. Protestantism teaches that you must understand the word of God, first of all. And that you must understand the word gave us this ceremony. And that the ceremony reflects 
the greatness of his ministry, the wonder of his ministry, and the power of his ministry. There is great power in the ceremony, but only if you understand that in 1 Corinthians 11 that we'll be reading in a little while, if you come to the ceremony without understanding, it warns you that you will eat and drink destruction upon yourself. See, totally different than paganism. Totally different than pagan ceremonies. Today, even in the ranks of the Reformed faith, I'm seeing and hearing people uh, who, one of the one of the problems is uh, a, a communion or Lord, the Lord's Supper every single week. Get, they are tending toward a ceremonialism which is more pagan, even though they use Jesus' name. It tends toward this pagan practice. One of the problems is in our modern day, we're, we are not we're not studying uh, the the uh, alternatives to Christianity, and so if you don't understand the antithesis to the thesis, if you don't understand the anti to what you're trying to do, very often you miss and you begin to mix in with your Christianity, the false things that are outside of, uh, of the true way. And so there are many things, many practices like this. Uh, charismatic church has some malignancies in it having to do with the, the, the Lord's Supper. Uh, they give up the idea, so many give up the idea altogether that there's really power in the meal. They think that the meal is just kind of a symbol, a symbolic thing, that it's really nice if we do it. No, it's not just nice if we do it. It's commanded to do it. We are commanded to take the Lord's Supper. We're commanded to look for grace through this meal. And there's real power associated with the meal. But it must come through us believing in the God who is there and believing that his son, his only begotten son, is the secret to the redemptive power associated with the meal. You must believe that. If you don't believe that, if you just come to the supper and looking for some kind of vague spirituality or some vague blessing, you are uh, taking holy things and in a sense blaspheming them. And because of that, then the, the Apostle Paul warned us that we would be eating and drinking destruction unto ourselves. So the table in Reformed, in our book for Reformed Books of Church Order, I learned this way back. My earliest years in seminaries then saw it exhibited in the different denominations I was in in the Reformed Church. But the Reformed Church has always demanded that a preaching, a preaching component accompany every Lord's Supper. So if you're ever in a church where they just kind of skip the preaching or they, they say, well, we preached last week, we'll just have the, the Lord's Supper this week, you can just walk out the door and say, this church is a fundamentally flawed view of the Lord's Supper. But if the word is preached like we are today, if the word uh, 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 dominates or uh, explains things like we are today, uh, then the responsibility all falls back upon your own heart. Am I coming to the Lord's Supper in faith? Do I really believe these things? Do I really believe Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God? Do I really believe in his divinity? Do I really believe in his saving, his saving work on the cross and also in life, working up righteousness for me? Do I really believe that? If you do, then the Bible says, come unto me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, come unto me. Receive the sacrament. Receive the blessing that's there. But you must have that personal faith in order 
to come with any expectation or any hope. And so that is the, the that is the way that John one and this idea of the word, the divine word, is connected to the supper. If you look at the ministry of John the Baptist, you see how John connected meaning with his ministry. He said in verse uh, 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and say and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now he just saw Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you see all the meaning that's associated in that, that uh, proclamation that John made? And then he said, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was he was before me. He was before the, even the creation. He was part of he was the divine son. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to 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 Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon you Upon, uh, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the divine Son of God. And there's John giving meaning, dictating meaning, talking about and preaching about meaning that relates to the Lord Jesus Christ. We today, in our day, we our whole culture is antithetical to meaning. We are confused about what a nation is. We're very confused about whether a nation actually needs a border or not. You know, every nation heretofore in human history has had a border. Part of the definition of a definitive country is that it has limits. It goes to a certain point. They call that the border. You know, if you want to talk about a human being, each of us as a human being, we have a border. It's the, the extent of our skin. Our bodies, beyond our bodies, you, you can't you can't talk about Dick Cole being in two places at one one time, uh, here in church and maybe at home or something, or out evangelizing on a Sunday morning. You can't talk about that because that's the limit of who we are. But our our country today, it, it's it, we are dead set. It seems like ex examining everything that's been taken for granted up to now. Do you know this the new this new movie? Um, oh boy. Um, what is it? The Sound of Freedom. Uh, it's This is a movie that was made three or four years ago by Disney. Then it, they just kept it in the vault. They didn't like it. They finally, somehow, they finally brought it out. And in, in one week, it beat all the other movies. There's a brand new movie, a Mission, no, not Mission, uh, not Mission Impossible, uh, yeah, Jandy and Joe. This is my bibliophile over here, <laughs> my my reference lady. Uh, but here, this was a the Indiana Jones was a, the, the, supposed to be the featured movie of the year, the best movie of the year. Hollywood believed in that, and yet this movie that they tried to throw out and get rid of beat the 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 focus movie at the box office. It's up to I think eighty or ninety million people after this first week. It's a it's a phenomenon. And the, the newspapers of the land are are criticizing the movie 
this way and that. Now, what's the movie about? It's about little children getting trafficked for sexual reasons by really, really bad, wicked people in the world. Why wouldn't the media love this? Why wouldn't the media support this? If we love satanic things, what does this tell us about ourselves? And there's unhappily, there's much of our modern culture which is given over to great evil, to the satanic. There's just so much confusion today. Uh, I, I like the, uh, uh, in reading through the Gospel of John and some of the other Gospels recently, I, I read the story of Mary and Elizabeth again. Mary is told that she's going to, she's going to give birth to a son who's going to be the Messiah. This little girl, I mean, she's 14 or 15 at the time. She was having trouble understanding all these, these things. The angels were speaking to her, but the angel told her also that Elizabeth, her cousin, was pregnant too with a, a prophet who was going to proclaim the way of her son. And so... I think it's Luke that talks about how Mary uh, just found it within herself to go visit Elizabeth. If you're a young girl and you, you, these unbelievable things are happening to you, wouldn't you want to understand something about it? Wouldn't you want to be a little bit more confident in what the angel had said to her? So she goes and she talks to Elizabeth, and Elizabeth is older than she is. And uh, when she comes in the house, uh, John, the John, who was in her womb, began to jump around like crazy because Jesus, who was in the womb of Mary, excited his soul in an extraordinary way. And so uh, Elizabeth explains this to Mary, that yes, what the angel said to you is true. It's going to happen because my son is going to be a blessing to your son. Because Mary was concerned about meaning. She was concerned about what was really going on with her. But in our day, there's this, there's this uh, d design or this, or this urge, this compulsion to get away from meaning. So that now the men's room is not really the men's room. Women are not really women. Men are not really men. We're all just kind of this mushy collections, these mushy collections of human corpuscles that people have called men and women in the past They've divided up people sexually in the past, but really that's passe. We, we can make a great advance if we get beyond these, these uh, definitions. You see how our whole culture today is moving away from definition, even as Jesus comes as the word to give definition to us, and he puts definition upon this table and upon this meal that we're going to partake of. This is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood, the new, the the, the blood, the, the uh, my blood in the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Do you believe that? I think you do. Then let us partake. Let us come to the table with joy and expectation, based upon that which we know we've been told clearly by God. Let's close in prayer. Our Father and our God, we pray now that you would bless us as we move into that part of the service where we partake of the communion. Oh God, give us joy in the definition and the clarity of our faith. Help us not to be attracted by <clears throat> uh, groups within Protestantism even that are drawn to paganism and more of a pagan view of ceremonialism. 
Help us to follow thine only begotten Son, the Word who was full of definition, who was full of light, and who shines in the midst of the darkness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.